Joshua Kendall is one of our own. He has been a member here um, since I've worked here uh, and um, has worked on many of his books within these walls. He is, uh, was born in New York City, attended Yale, received his BA, and completed uh, doctoral work in comparative literature at Johns Hopkins. He's currently an associate fellow at Yale's Trumbull College. An award-winning journalist, he's published, among others, in the Wall Street Journal, LA Times, New York Times, Psychology Today, and Business Week. Uh, he is the author of The Man Who Made Lists about the creation of Roger's Thesaurus. I recall bringing back every edition of Roger's Thesaurus for him, um, and I'll do it for you if you'd like. And he's also written The Forgotten Founding Father, a biography of Noah Webster, the um, author responsible for Webster's Dictionary. This afternoon, Kendall will discuss fatherhood and the American presidency, the topic of his recent book, First Dads. Um, the New York Times Book Review says it provides delightful peeks at life inside the White House. Kirkus calls it rich in detail, informative, with great insights and new understanding. And the Library Journal declares it fascinating, an inspiring title likely to appeal to all audiences. I'm sure you'll agree with me as you welcome me in joining Joshua Kendall. Thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yes, I, I've worked on four books uh, here at the Athenaeum on the fifth floor, and I just want to emphasize that the resources here are incredible. For my Roger book, uh, Mary was able to fish out the original edition of the thesaurus that came out in 1852, and I was actually able to take it home with me and study it for, for a year. Uh, this is really an amazing place, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, talking about my latest book. Uh, just a, a quick uh, overview of the book. Uh, I was in Washington uh, a month ago, and I left a copy of the book for President Obama through a press aide, and I signed it to America's best first dad, though, as you will note, the competition is not particularly keen. Uh, the story is a little grim. Uh, the, the powerful men who rose to the presidency, such as Franklin Roosevelt, were not the best of dads. In the words of the USA Today, father knows best unless he's a first dad. That was their title of, of their review. Uh, when, when we think about presidents, we learn about them as, as in grade school, and they're kind of like statues. And when we first learn about them, we idealize them, and then maybe we, take a, we start taking history courses in high school and college, and then we realize they have some flaws, and then we might start denigrating them. I sort of, there's either idealization or denigration, and what, and what I want to do is capture the complexity of these men and who they were, uh, and I see fathering as a way in to character. As James David Barber, a prominent political hist uh, historian in the 1970s said, the issues will change, but the character of the president will last. So we tend to think of presidents as lists of policies, but I want to take you into their decision-making process and to give you a feel for what it was like to have dinner with the president or to spend a weekend with the president. Now, information about the kids has been guarded. The last thing a lot of presidential families want, although I got cooperation from several, but the last thing that many presidential presidential families want is someone like me snooping around in the archives. I was over at the Mass Historical looking at the Adams Papers, 
and some crucial letters between John Adams and one of his sons, Char uh, Charles, went missing. And most historians believe that the family didn't want anyone to see them. So it, the information on the kids uh, is not, has, there hasn't been a lot written. So it's, it's been kind of guarded by the families and ignored by the historians. Historians tend to feel that the family life of the president is just squishy stuff. Okay, John Kennedy played with his kid under the desk. What else do you need to know? And in this book, I argue that it's not squishy stuff, but that these relationships are written into the fabric of American history. And let me just give you a few examples. Calvin Coolidge, uh, he loses his son, his 16-year-old son, in 1924. And he's about to run for president uh, for his own term. His son dies, cuts his toe on the White House tennis court. And Coolidge is a basket case for the next five years of his life. That's when he starts taking these long naps and sleeping 11 hours a day. In 1933, Dorothy Parker of The New Yorker says upon Coolidge's death, how could they tell? Uh, he's really out of it. And, and before the death of his son, he's a dynamo and he's on top of everything. There's an earthquake in Japan in 1923. He's the first war leader to respond. And I wrote a piece for The New York Times in October because this election is also, has also been affected by loss. Remember, Joe Biden would have been running against Hillary Clinton this spring if he hadn't lost a child. And another president who lost a child is Franklin Pierce. And this had a huge impact on American history. In January of 1853, two months before Pierce was to start his, his uh, term, he takes a, a train uh, not far from here, from the Boston area, going back to New Hampshire with his third and only surviving son. Uh, the train crashes, a piece of wood smashes his, slices his head, son's head open. Pierce has to pick up his dead son with a hole in the head. And he's never the same. I found an amazing letter at Harvard where Pierce just says, I don't know if I can go on. Pierce also says something like that to his Secretary of War, incoming Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis. His wife literally goes psychotic. She starts writing letters to her dead children. And Pierce is considered one of our worst presidents. But I think you have to understand the human context there and that the outcome might have been very different if this, he hadn't suffered this loss. So again, this isn't just squishy stuff, but the fathering experiences are important both for the lives of the presidents and also for the course of history. A little bit about my method. Uh, I, I try to take a nonpartisan approach, and I'm looking at the long view of history. Some Democratic presidents have been lousy fathers. Some have been some Republican presidents have been lousy fathers. It's not about you know, party affiliation. There have been 43 presidents. 38 had biological children. The other five adopted children, uh, and one of those was George Washington. And that's also, and his case also shows the importance of fathering on American history. George Washington's wife, Martha, had a couple of kids from her first marriage. In, in, in one of uh, the drafts of his first inaugural, Washington emphasizes this. Because remember, in the 1780s, we had just fought a war to get the Brits out of our face. And the last thing we wanted was to establish a monarchy. 
So in a draft of his inaugural, Washington notes, look, I'm a, I'm a safe candidate because I don't have biological children and I'm not likely to pass on the reins of power to one of my own children like a monarch. And that's one of the reasons that he was selected unanimously as our first president. Obviously, he was a great leader, but the fact that he wasn't a father in the traditional sense uh, was important. Now, I divide the presidents into, I don't go chronologically, but I divide the presidents into six buckets. And as I alluded to at the beginning, the most, you know, the, the news isn't good, and the most common bucket is the preoccupied dad. These are dads that are thinking about getting and obtaining power all the time. As LBJ once said, I think about politics only 18 hours a day. Uh, his daughter, Linda, I mean, LBJ loved his two girls, and I spoke to Lucy, but, his, but he rarely saw them. Uh, and his daughter, Linda, wanted FaceTime with him. So as a teenager, she begins downing the congressional record. Not a, not of her, a lot of her classmates didn't even know what it was. But she figured that if she could talk to her father about legislation pending before Congress, uh, th you know, they could bond. Uh, so the preoccupied is the most common. Uh, another example is Jimmy Carter. Uh, his son Jack said dad was one track. You know, all dad cared about uh, was, was politics. And again, the quickest way to get to Pennsylvania Avenue is to be obsessed by politics. So that's not surprising. But there are other categories. Another one is playful pals, and, and, and the most prominent example there is Theodore Roosevelt. He had young children. He would often stop work at 3 o'clock, head up to the attic in the White House, and start playing tag uh, with his kids. Uh, another category, and this may be uh, the juiciest, is double-dealing dads, dads who fathered illegitimate children. Uh, the, you might remember the election of 1884. Grover Cleveland uh, fathered an illegitimate child, and he admitted it. Warren Harding falls into that category, and there's now DNA evidence supporting the allegations of his mistress. Uh, and there are also a couple of surprises, which I'll get to a little bit, in a little while. Uh, tiger dads. Remember Amy Chua wrote the book Tiger Moms? Well, I, I came up with my category of tiger dads, and these are very authoritarian presidents. And John Adams was one. John Adams told John Quincy, you're either going to be president or I'm going to consider you a failure. Uh, John Quincy lived up to the challenge, but his two brothers, as I said, uh, Charles, for where, where the letters are missing, his two brothers didn't do so well. Charles self-destructed and dies of alcoholism at the age of 30. Uh, another category, the fifth category is the grief-stricken, which I talked about a little bit. And then the last category, it's not all bad news, are the sweet dads, I th the nurturing dads. One example is Barack Obama. And this book is, a, is about the evolution of fatherhood. In the 18th century, fathers weren't supposed to be anything but providers. And if you, if you think linguistically, the verb father means to procreate. It has nothing to do with childcare, and that's the way it's been traditionally used. Compare that to mother. When you think of mothering a child, you think of tucking the child in or, or uh, you know, taking care of a child when he's sick. But fathering traditionally hasn't been about that. But it is changing, and Barack Obama is, is, is a very much of a 21st century dad, and there are likely to be more nurturing dads in the White House, although 
uh, still the preoccupied uh, you know, are going to be a significant chunk. And so the way the book is organized is that I say I did three presidents in depth in each chapter, but I do say something about all the presidents. So in case you're curious, I do talk about Chester Arthur, uh, and I describe him as a, as a playful pal. And in case you're curious about his son, uh, Alan, his son Alan became a, a polo-playing playboy with his playful dad. All right, let me, let me show you some pictures to give you a feel for uh, some of the pre presidents and their children. Now, this is FDR and his eldest son, James. And FDR, as president, was an amazing father figure to the nation. When he dies in April of 1945, most Americans felt as if they had lost a father. He gets us through the Depression. He gets us through the Nazis. He gets us through most of the war with Japan. And Americans feel a very strong attachment to this protective leader, but not to his sons and his daughter. He has five children. They feel alienated. And a different part of FDR comes out with his children, the kind of needy, Part, and he literally leans on his children. Remember, he gets polio in 1921. And when he makes his political comeback in 1924 in Madison Square Garden, he's leaning on his 16-year-old son, James. And he leans on them both physically and emotionally. His, he has a kind of topsy-turvy relationship with his kids. Uh, and they take care of him. Uh, during World War II, his daughter, Anna, moves into the White House. And here's Anna. Uh, and Anna takes care of FDR, so it's as if his children take care of him so he can take care of the country. FDR has a bad heart, and Anna may well have been responsible for extending his life a couple of years. Uh, no one in the White House is taking it seriously. She makes sure that he gets to the doctor. She's also at Yalta, and she's micromanaging his daily schedule and is extremely concerned about his heart condition, and so she's a kind of caretaker for her father. All right, uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, th this is Jimmy Carter's son, Chip, whom I interviewed. And that's Chip's uh, former wife, Karen, whom I interviewed. And yeah, I, I stayed in Atlanta with uh, Karen and her family. And I also gave a book to Jimmy Carter through Karen. And I described Jimmy Carter as our best post-presidential, best post-president and our best post-presidential dad. And I'll get into that in a second. So here's Jimmy Carter today. Now, those of us who are around in the 70s remember Amy. Everyone, there were constant pictures of Amy. She was a young kid living in the White House. People forget that Jimmy Carter had three sons. But these sons were critical. Remember I talked about how the fathering experiences are woven into the fabric of American history? There's no President Jimmy Carter without his three sons because Chip, Jack, and Jeff all had young wives. They were in their 20s, such as Karen, and that was a staff of six. In 1974, Jimmy Carter was a governor of Georgia. He was on the show, What's My Line?, and he stumped the panel. No one knew who the hell he was, but he had this built-in staff of six, and he was the first one to take the Iowa caucuses seriously, and he starts campaigning, and he announces his candidacy in December, so we have him to thank for the long presidential campaign. He starts his, announces his candidacy in December of 1974, and his staff of six go around the country uh, 
raising money. Now, now, now the point about why Jimmy Carter was the best post-presidential dad is the following. We think of him as very sweet or sort of peaceful, but as a dad, he was extremely tough. He was a Naval Academy grad, and he treated especially his three sons as military underlings. In, in the 1980s, after his presidency is over, his eldest son, Jack, comes up to him and said, Dad, you ruined my life due to your harsh parenting. Jimmy Carter had a philosophy of spanking. He was really, really tough. And what, what was so moving is Jack calls him out in the 1980s, and Carter works at it a lot. Initially, he's kind of defensive and angry, but he says, all right, let me think about this. And he's written, in, and Jimmy Carter has written about 30 books, and a couple of them are about his own father named Earl, who uh, was very, very tough. And Jimmy Carter basically tries to make amends with Jack and say, look, I, I kind of repeated with you what had happened to me. I was very busy. Uh, you know, uh, running for president, and I was kind of out of it as a dad. And I just found that very, very moving that he could reflect on his parenting, the parenting that he received and the parenting that he gave, and try to reestablish connections with his family. So that's why I think he's a exemplary post-presidential dad, but maybe not such a great dad uh, before and during his presidency. This is Franklin Pierce. Uh, Harry Truman called him the most handsome president, and he was a dynamo before that tragedy in January of 1853. He was a very eloquent speaker, and there were extremely high hopes. He was the uh, last Democratic president to win a majority uh, before Franklin Roosevelt. He was very popular, and everything came crumbling, crashing down after the loss of his son. Here's Calvin Coolidge's son, Cal Jr. Uh, and just a sweet kid, and there was, he was a, a media sensation. There was stories about him constantly. He became a national hero. And again, Coolidge was a little bit out of it as president, but that sweet kid helped Coolidge politically. You know, with how, how could you not you know, feel for the dad of that kid, even though Coolidge's policies in many cases were insensitive? Uh, there was a flood in the South in 1927, and Coolidge just didn't respond at all. But the dad of that kid, a lot of Americans couldn't help but give him a break. Here's John Quincy Adams. Uh, he, he too was a tiger dad. Uh, John Quincy Adams has uh, three sons, and he's very tough on them. The sons are here at Harvard, and one of the sons is 30th in his class of, of 75. And John Quincy Adams says, no Christmas vacation for you back home. You got to stay in Cambridge and hit the books. And his first son is George Washington Adams. And this is maybe the saddest uh, section in the book, but I felt I had to give the whole story. George Washington Adams commits suicide. And you can't put that on John, John Quincy's, you know, it's not his total responsibility, but his harshness certainly had something to do with it. Uh, George Washington was 28 in 1829. John Quincy gets booted out of office after one term. He's in Washington, and he says to George, please come from, come home, come from Boston uh, to Washington and help me move back to Quincy. George Washington was quite smart. Uh, he, he nabbed a literary prize over Ralph Waldo Emerson 
at Harvard, but he was very shy. And he had an alcohol problem, plus he had a, a child with an Irish uh, chambermaid, uh, a girl from the wrong side of the tracks. And he was terrified that when his father came, comes back to Boston, would come back to Boston, he would see what a mess he had made of his life. So on that trip to Washington, he jumps off a boat and kills himself. But, but grief can have a lot of effects. As I wrote in this New York Times story, sometimes it can break a, a politician. That was the case with Pierce and Coolidge. But sometimes, psychologists have talked about post-traumatic growth. And sometimes in the wake of tragedy, politicians can find can reach deep inside themselves and come up with kind of heroic parts. After the death of George Washington, Adams, John Quincy Adams makes a remarkable comeback. Remember, that's when he becomes an abolitionist congressman and for the last 20 years of his life is a very articulate advocate against slavery. Another example of a president who experienced post-traumatic growth in the wake of a chilling loss was Abe Lincoln. In 1862, Abe Lincoln loses Willie, his favorite son, and when he dies, in, right before his death in 1865, he said that every day of his presidency, he would think of Willie. But in contrast to Pierce or Coolidge, Lincoln reaches deep inside, and after that horrible loss, he becomes an amazing uh, president. I mean, he's just able to mount the, the war effort that needs to be undertaken, and also try to unify the country uh, and to end slavery. So somehow, out of that horror, Lincoln kind of finds himself almost as a leader. So the tragedy can work both ways, and a couple of presidents were destroyed by it, but a couple of presidents were almost made by it. Uh, yes, another president who suffered a, a, a chilling loss was Theodore Roosevelt. Remember, he loses Quentin in July of 1918. Theodore Roosevelt was considered presidential timber in 1920. He was only about 60, but he literally dies of a broken heart about six months after his son Quentin dies. Uh, Quentin is about 20 and is shot down by the Germans. Here's John Eisenhower, uh, who went to West Point, and there's an amazing coincidence, which as a writer uh, had me licking my chops, which is that John Eisenhower graduates from West Point on June 6, 1944. So I have a scene in my book on that day, and Eisenhower gets his diploma, and then he's immediately whisked off to the, to the front to meet with his father, and they have a month together. His father's a nervous wreck, because he has no idea how D-Day is going, but his father is also in full tiger dad mode. Eisenhower, like Adams, was very, very tough and he also was very imposing. Uh, Eisenhower, we think of him as a doddering golfer because you know, he was president in his 60s and, and all he could do was play golf. But in his 20s, he was an amazing physical specimen. He was a linebacker at West Point who once tackled Jim Thorpe in a football game. John once said, he never hit me, but if he had, he would have killed me. Uh, very, very tough. And uh, John goes to the front, sees his father, and his father's in full tiger dad mode. So they play bridge, and Eisenhower goes after him for his lousy bidding. Uh, then poor John gets a little dirt on his uniform, 
And Eisenhower says, oh my gosh, how can you, you know, walk around like that? So he was very tough. And the tiger dad can either make or break a kid. And John actually did pretty well. He lives into his 90s and was a, a prominent uh, military historian and wrote a lot of interesting books, about, particularly about World War II. Here's Teddy Roosevelt. Remember, he's a playful pal. And I, I did a piece for Politico about the power of, of presidential kids, because we elect not only a president. You know, remember, Clinton said two for the price of one. You know, he, you're going to get Hillary, and now, now that might happen again. But we also get the kids. And Teddy Roosevelt had a daughter from his first marriage, Alice. And this is a letter that he writes to Alice. This is over at Houghton in the Harvard Library. It's very playful. He refers to her as her excellentissima. He's kind of playing with her, but he's also using her for political purposes. Alice was very rebellious. TR said, you know, you can't smoke under my roof. So Alice smokes on the roof. <laughs> and actually, Chip Carter then uh, uh, follows suit. And as I report in my book, he smoked dope on the roof of, of the White House. Uh, Alice. Uh, so he uses Alice. She's very rebellious. But in 1905, the Russians and the Japanese are at war. And TR says, oh my, he used to say, well, I can either run the country or I can either manage the country or I can manage Alice. But then he decides, okay, this is a rebellious kid, but she also has a lot of creativity and spark. So I'm going to try to use her. And he sends her on a diplomatic mission to the Far East. And that's what this letter is about. And she's helpful to him in ending the Russian-Japanese war. And the next year, he wins the Nobel Prize. So again, and maybe you know Chelsea Clinton is going to be sent somewhere, or, or one of Trump's kids. And I'll get back to the Trump's kids. I, I've spoken to one of them, and I have some thoughts about that uh, as we conclude. Here's Grover Cleveland, our double-dealing dad. And he marries a much younger woman, 30 years younger, who's his ward. So it's, it's kind of a yuck factor. And, and he, so in 1884, remember that ma, ma, where's my pa? So he acknowledges fathering a child out of wedlock. But he does, he does then kind of slime the woman. And he says that she's a drunk and a slut. But the evidence seems to be that those characteristics apply more to him than the woman. Grover Cleveland acknowledges having a double personality, Big Steve and Grover the Good. And it seems as if Big Steve is the womanizer and the drinker, and that Grover the Good is the politician. Uh, and I found evidence that Big Steve was still in operation even after he, he marries this much younger woman. I found some love letters that Cleveland wrote to another woman after his marriage to her. So, uh, and what's also interesting is that the woman, Maria Halpin, who has the child, alleged that she was raped. And historians don't even report that, but they're affidavits that she filed in the 1880s. And I don't know the truth. I don't know. It's very hard to find out. But I think it's a he said, she said. And both sides need to be reported. Uh, well, what's so interesting about Cleveland, and this is how complicated people are, that even though I think his personal life, frankly, was a little bit sleazy, Grover the Good was actually pretty good. Uh, I would trust him with the budget, and he was actually uh, quite an effective president who wins, uh, who, who, who was voted out of office, but then makes a comeback. So again, this is just how complicated. We tend to think 
you know, he's either a good guy or a bad guy. Cleveland was everything. He was a bunch of different guys. And I think uh, that's part of what I'm trying to do is use the family life as a way in to the complexity not only of our presidents, but to all of us and to our own fathers and to us as uh, parents. Here's John Tyler. John Tyler is one of my double-dealing dads. A lot has been written on Jefferson uh, by Annette Gordon-Reed, who won a, a, a Pulitzer, and I really can't improve on that. So I, 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 I mention a little bit about Jefferson, but I focus on John Tyler, Tippecanoe and Tyler II, the election of, of 1840, and that was the ticket with the mostest, the most fertile ticket in American history, even if you include only the white children. Uh, William Henry Harrison had 10 children with his wife. John Tyler had eight children with his first wife and seven with his second wife, whom he marries in 1844. Now that's 25 of the white children. Now let's go to the slave children. Historians believe that Harrison, who was from Virginia, fathered four slave children. And there's considerable circumstantial evidence that Tyler fathered dozens of slave children uh, according to some of the oral histories, the figure is actually 52. Now, I don't, have, I don't have DNA evidence. My sense is that these allegations have quite a bit behind them. In the chapter, I detail uh, exactly uh, what the circumstantial evidence is. And I have a sense that there, remember the Jefferson allegations have been around for 100 years and they've finally been believed. I have a sense that the Tyler situation is kind of where the Jefferson was a half century ago. Uh, and here is one of the alleged slave children. Uh, this is Sylvanius Tyler Brown. And if you, the Tyler picture is small, but their faces look a little bit the same. All right, I just wanted to say a little bit more about some of the uh, different categories. So preoccupied, my three stars for that chapter are FDR, LBJ, and Carter, but that's the largest category. And that's going to include uh, William Howard Taft, uh, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. And maybe this is a place to talk about the two candidates who are running for election this year, the presumptive nominees, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton obviously would be our first, first mom. But I think she fits in this category of preoccupied. She once said you have to be a little bit crazy to run for president. You've got to think about politics all the time. Remember, Bill Clinton was called the first black president because he liked to go to black churches and had a natural affinity for the African-American community. But in some ways, Barack Obama is really the first woman president in that same sense that he was raised primarily by his mother and his grandmother. He never really knew his own father, and he fathers just as he was mothered. He was, he's, he's a connector. And Hillary Clinton, women of that generation who wanted to make it big in law or politics and medicine, had to be almost more male than the men. And I think her kind of parenting is preoccupied, just like LBJ. I mean, she's a very hard worker, very, very serious. She's thinking about politics uh, all the time. And to give you an example of her preoccupation, Chelsea has been campaigning since she was two, so the preoccupied kind of bring their children into their world rather than a more nurturing dad. You know, Obama seems to be happy that Malia wants to be a filmmaker. 
And but Chelsea Clinton, her whole identity is through politics. Right now, she's the vice chair of the Clinton Foundation. Anyhow, when she was six, Bill was running for governor in Arkansas, and the Republicans were saying all kinds of nasty things about him. And, and Hillary writes about this in It Takes a Village, and she says, well, Bill and I decided to sit down and tell Chelsea about all these insults. Poor six-year-old Chelsea is crying her eyes out. Now, Obama, I, I think, would say a more nurturing parent would say, come on, she's six years old. Let's, we don't have to tell her everything. But Chelsea and Bill, and Bill is also a preoccupied dad, you know, politics is in their blood. That's what they're thinking about. And they think their daughter, no matter what her age, should share their preoccupations. So I think, you know, she's preoccupied. That's not to say that, you know, she couldn't be a great president. You know, FDR was one of our best presidents. So I'm trying to capture the complexity, but that as a parent, you know, her record is so-so the way FDRs or, or LBJ, that's not really uh, her, her strength. And Obama, that is his strength, but, you know, it seems like people are, are a little frustrated that he's not more of a kind of a can-do uh, president. Uh, now, going back to Trump, I interviewed Eric Trump. Uh, Trump has three children from his first marriage. And Trump uh, is a preoccupied dad. He's thinking about work all the time. And just as Chelsea Clinton is the vice chair of the Clinton Foundation, his three elder children, who are all in their 30s, are vice presidents of the Trump Organization. And Eric told me that when he was 10 years old, he would be working on construction sites you know, during his summer vacation. So Jimmy Carter had his sons uh, doing backbreaking work on the farm. Chip Carter was driving a tractor when he was 10 years old. So just like that preoccupied dad, Trump is giving his children assignments you know, at the workplace when they're young as opposed to a more nurturing parent, you know, who would say, okay, you know, let's, what do you want to do for the summer? Maybe you should you know, go to summer camp. But, but so Trump and Clinton, and I think Trump and Clinton, as I wrote for, in a piece for Parade, I think the nation, I think we, both Democrats and Republicans, really respect Obama as a father, but both Democrats and Republicans are a little bit frustrated that he hasn't been more like LBJ, because Obama eats dinner five nights a week with his girls, but LBJ schmoozes, you know, with congressmen. And I think out of this frustration with Obama as maybe being too nice or not enough of a take-charge leader has come Trump, and Trump in many ways is the anti-Obama, and also both Clinton and Sanders were, you know, were, you know, they're not warm and fuzzy the way Obama is, and I think Americans really want to change right now. Um, all right, so that's about the preoccupied. And now the playful pals. Uh, my three stars of that chapter are, are Teddy Roosevelt, whom I've spoken about, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, he had an alcohol problem, but I argue that it wasn't because he was a social misfit. It's because he really loved playing with his kids. And in 1854, he's a, on an army base in California, and he writes, he has young, very young children, a couple of kids below the age of two, and he writes this very tender wife, a letter to his wife, Julia, and says, I really miss little Ulysses. And that's when he starts drinking, and he resigns from the military uh, because he's, he's just beside himself because he can't be with his children. In 1872, his daughter, Nellie, is, is 18, and she gets married in the White House. It's one of the premier social events 
of the 19th century, and Nellie is going to marry a Brit, and Grant is brokenhearted because it means that Nellie is going to go live in England. So right after the ceremony, Grant goes into her bedroom and cries his eyes out. And again, I think the family life tells you, gives you more information about the humanity and the different sides of these leaders. We think of Grant as a, certainly in the South, I was in Richmond, and there they think of Brandt as this kind of sadistic general, but he had these other sides to him, uh, which came out in his parenting. Another example of a playful pal is Woodrow Wilson. And we think of Wilson as a dour intellectual, but he had three daughters, and he loved dancing with his daughters. Uh, and, and, and again, the, the fathering experience of our presidents are woven into American history, after he became president, one of his daughters said to him, how come four-fifths of the family can't vote? Three daughters and a wife. And Wilson you know, gets behind the stick and becomes a supporter of uh, women's suffrage. And about the dancing, if you believe the old Freudian maxim that you know, the daughter uh, that refines the father in a husband, one of the daughters marries the best dancer in Washington, who happens to be uh, <coughs> Wilson's Secretary of, of the Treasury, uh, William McAdoo. All right, a, couple, a little more about the double-dealing dads. I've spoken about Tyler, Cleveland, and Harding. Harding uh, used to have sex in the coat closet of the White House. This woman, Nan Britton. Nan Britton writes a memoir in 1928, five years after Harding's death, saying he fathered my daughter. No one in the mainstream media takes her seriously, with the exception of H.L. Mencken. So it's okay, this woman just a liar. Okay. In 1960, there's a Harding biographer who stumbles on 200 florid love letters that Harding writes to his main squeeze, a woman named Carrie Phillips. Those letters are now uh, at the Library of Congress. And then the historians say, hmm, let's see here. Maybe this is going to check out. And finally, uh, in 2015, there's DNA evidence uh, proving the allegation of, of Nan Britton. And it's just amazing looking at the biographer, the biographies of Harding, because so many biographers just immediately assume that this woman is lying. And even very recently, and it's, they don't even see it as a you know, two-sided, okay, what's she saying, what's she saying? How do they know? They just immediately assume that she's lying. And again, just. There, there are a lot of biases in biographies, and I encourage you to think about that whenever you uh, pick up a presidential biography. Uh, so I talk, and and one, one of the surprises in the double-dealing dads is LBJ. We think of Kennedy as a womanizer, because he was, and, but LBJ also. LBJ told a biographer, uh, used, used to brag to his staff, I had more women by accident than Kennedy had by, de by design. He was really out of control. At one point, he had five secretaries in his secretarial pool, and he was uh, having affairs with all of them. Uh, he was out of control. Uh, one woman writes a memoir uh, in the 1990s, including some canceled checks, uh, and the son died in the 1990s. But here's another piece of circumstantial evidence that makes me believe her allegations, besides the canceled checks. Uh, LBJ had one aide who works for him in 1962. And she's very loyal, and she stays with him through 1969. 
So she, her, her credibility is unimpeachable. And she told a biographer that shortly after she moved to Washington from Texas to work for LBJ, LBJ offered to set her up an apartment in New York if she would agree to have his kid. And she politely declined the offer. So again, that's why, so that's, that's an example of circumstantial evidence that, uh, and that's the kind of evidence that I have for Tyler as well. So that's not proof, and there isn't DNA proof, but when I see canceled checks and when I hear about that, it does seem to check out, although, you know, everything is an interpretation, and uh, until there's DNA evidence, you can't be sure. I, the Tiger Dads, I've spoken about Adams and Adams uh, and, and uh, Eisenhower, uh, who, who was very tough, uh, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll just move on a little bit more about the grief-stricken. Uh, so I've spoken about Pierce and Coolidge. The other star in that chapter is William McKinley. McKinley loses two children in the 1870s. And it's kind of like FDR and polio. Polio kind of made FDR. After polio, he becomes much more empathic, and he really sort of finds himself as a politician. And the same for McKinley. After those losses, remember I said loss can sometimes break someone, but McKinley's wife uh, then has a stroke and she becomes an invalid, but McKinley sort of finds himself as this uh, caretaker of his wife and out of this grief comes the energy to go into politics. A few years later, uh, he, he runs for Congress for the first time. He's a very effective congressman. And there's just, again, out of these losses came his sort of voice as a politician. Another interesting example of a grieving dad is JF, uh, JFK. Uh, in a couple of years, a couple of months before he dies, he's over here at Mass General uh, on a bedside vigil with a son who dies after about 20 hours. JFK is holding his hand, and as soon as that son dies, he goes into a supply room at, at the general and cries his eyes out. And JFK, his marriage was on the rocks because of all his womanizing. But after that loss, he becomes much closer to Jackie. And he sort of has an aha moment where he realizes that he hasn't been paying sufficient attention to his family. So that loss, uh, you know, JFK may well have been a very different kind of family man uh, had he lived longer. So I want to end with a little bit of sweetness. Uh, we, we do have some sweet dads. Uh, so the nurturing dads, Obama. Another example is Rutherford B. Hayes. Rutherford B. Hayes, president in 1876. He, uh, he's the fellow behind the Easter egg roll at the White House. And he's just a sweet guy, and he, and he just loves his daughter, and he loves you know, making birthday parties for his three-year-old daughter, and he loves just looking at what word she's using this week. And, it's just very tender, and he walks out of the White House in 1878, and a street urchin comes up to him and says, Sir, can we roll our eggs on your lawn? And Hayes says, All right. Let me talk to my people. He talks to his people, and he does it. And that's the largest event at the White House every year. There are 30,000 kids come to the president's lawn uh, and uh, for the Easter egg roll. And another example of uh, a sweet dad is Harry Truman. Uh, and his, his wife, Bess, was kind of tough, and Margaret describes herself as a total daddy's girl. In the 1940s, she wants to become a singer, 
and Bess, and Bess was traumatized. Bess had this terrible thing happen to her when she's 18 years old in, in, in independence. Uh, her father blows his brains out in the house. Truman was afraid of running for vice president in 1944 because he was, suicide then was a huge source of shame, and he was afraid that Bess would be crushed if this came out. It didn't, but Bess was a nervous wreck all the time. And in the 1940s, Margaret wants to become a singer, and Bess says, no way, come on, just you know, get married, pump out the kids. You know, you're not supposed to have a career here. This is America in the 1940s. And Harry says, if she wants to become a warbler, let's let her become a warbler. And he's very supportive. And then you remember in 1950, she gives a concert at Constitution Hall, and the Washington Post critic goes after her. Harry is this protective dad. He gets up at 5 in the morning, writes a letter to the editor, in which he threatens to chop the block off of this Paul Hume, the Washington Post critic. His aides are horrified. They say, Mr. President, look what you've done. You made a fool out of yourself. And Harry says, let's look at the mail. You know, no internet then. Mail 80-20 in favor of the president. Margaret then says, I'm glad chivalry isn't dead. She appreciates it. And now the book is called Parenting and Politics, so I always try to connect the parenting to the politics. So let's go back to Truman. The most consequential decision in his career was whether or not to drop the bomb in August of 1945. He's only in office a few months, and he's got to decide, do I use this horrible weapon? And I think the same calculus went into that decision that went into his nasty gram to the Washington Post. That decision, the generals are telling him that if he continues the war effort without the bomb, that 200 to 250,000 American boys are going to die. Now, Truman wasn't a warmonger. He wasn't a violent man. But he was a protective father. And, he, and I think the calculation was, OK, you Japanese, if you're going to take out 200,000 of my boys, I'm going to nuke you. I know, you know, I, and you know, I think five years later, Paul Hume, if you're going to try to take out my daughter, I'm going to nuke you. And I think that's, uh, that was kind of Harry Truman's mindset. So I want you to think about these presidents as human beings and in their decision-making process. And I'm hoping that will, it will give you, the book will give you a new view about presidents past, also presidents future and also about your own lives and the parenting you received and the kind of parent you are or want to be and how you've interacted with your own family. So I think I'll stop there and I'll be happy to take questions and continue the discussion.